Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. It's God's word for his people today. You may be seated. And let's turn again to our good God in prayer and ask once again for his help. So, Father, we pray that you would be our good shepherd and lead us through the life-giving pastures of your word. Where else can we go? For you alone have the words of life. But without your grace, our hearts will not receive it, our ears will not hear it, our eyes cannot see it, our minds will not understand it. And so we pray for your spirit to come now and move among us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Hearts that would be fanned afresh in love and passion for you. We pray that you would give us eyes to see our glorious Savior so that we would behold him and that you would change us from one degree of glory into the next into the one we behold. Do it, we pray, for our good and your glory. Amen. So as a child, uh, lived in a neighborhood that had uh, lots of kids my age and we would always be on bikes riding around to each other's houses. And whenever I hopped on my bike to head out with my friends or to go meet my friends, my mom would always call out after me, be good. And being the fantastic firstborn child that I am, I always was. I mean, I honestly hardly got in trouble as a child. Uh, even when my friends did, I was like, nope, I'm a good boy. I'm not doing that. And uh, I rarely got in trouble even when they all did. Now, my siblings would roll their eyes every time they were told to be good like their older brother. And you can imagine having that uh, go before you, how hard probably uh, going to school and church and up through sports was for them having to hear about it. Um, so my younger brother was like, okay, I'm going to do this entirely different. Uh, he was mischievous for sure. My mom could tell him to be good till she was blue in the face, and there was a fat chance that was going to happen. Uh, in fact, uh, when he was little, we still joke about this, he had like a human leash on him. You know, poor, poor kid. He was like, fine, that's how JJ is. I'll show you what's up, you know. And they had like that zipper in the back so my mom could hold on to him and not, not lose that child. Um, my, my brother's great. He, he is, uh, always was, he's always had a kind heart, but he just had that mischievous streak in him. And I still have that uh, good Pharisee firstborn streak in me. Uh, when we were last together with my mom, she passed away last uh, Easter. Uh, when we were last together uh, with her uh, in, around Christmas time, my brother did something and I was like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> He's gonna get it now. And my mom just laughed. And I was like, mom, if I did that, you know, you would never let me get away with it. You'd be giving me the business right now if I did that. She just smiled at me and said, yep. <laughs> I was like, man, 
still, still to this day. I'm, she's like, you go be a good boy now. Get out of here. And so that, that's what I was. And my brother was mischievous and I was good. But again, like I just said, I wasn't really good. I was a good Pharisee. I was good at following rules uh, for uh, the boosting of my self-righteousness. So pridefully, I could look around and go, at least I'm not like these people. And speaking in the language of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, I was, I was the uh, pinnacle of the good older son. Uh, and I needed a good older brother to save me and to bring me in to the Father. And good thing, that's what our good God does. He saves sinners. And so as we continue our summer series on the fruit of the Spirit, we come to the Spirit's fruit of goodness in the lives of God's people. And to truly understand what the Spirit actually produces in the lives of God's people, we have to begin with how the fruit of goodness that is produced in us reflects the nature and character of God. And so as we've done with the previous fruit of the Spirit, we're going to begin with the root of God's goodness, and then we'll see how that root produces the fruit of goodness in the lives of God's people. So it's the root of God that leads to the fruit of God in God's people's lives. So let's start with the root of God's goodness, the root of God's goodness. The first thing to know about the root of God's goodness is that goodness is God's nature. Goodness is God's nature. Uh, goodness is who God is. Now, you know how sometimes people get nicknames based on characteristics of them or their anti-characteristics. You know, we had a very small friend in our friend group that we rode around bikes with and we called him Big Mike. But Big Mike was not the Big Mike. He was Small Mike. So we get those things, but it had to do with him or, or something happens or that person grows up and then their nickname reflects who they are. A couple of us guys this week took Owen to the Tigers game uh, to watch them take on the Angels because the best baseball player on the planet was in town, Shohei Otani. And Shohei's nickname is Showtime which is obviously a play on words with his name, but also because he always puts on a show with his unrivaled skills, which he did in a historic way just on Thursday, things that had never been done before in Major League Baseball. And you can walk around the concourse at Comerica Park to the outfield and see this uh, park where there's six statues of the best tigers in history there, one of which is Al Kaline, and his nickname is Mr. Tiger. Mr. Tiger. K-Line's play on the field for Detroit became synonymous with the team itself. So you couldn't say K-Line without thinking Tigers, and you couldn't think of the Detroit Tigers without thinking K-Line. And the same is true of God. You can't think of God without goodness coming to mind. And you actually can't truly understand or get to what goodness really is without ultimately the ultimate good coming to mind. God. God is good because goodness is who he is. It's essential to his nature, so much so that you could call God good. Now, this illustration obviously breaks down if you press it too far because Shohei became Showtime and Kaline became Mr. Tiger, but there was a time when neither of them were what they are now. 
And there's going to come a day uh, for Shohei, uh, as it already has for Kaline, when the nicknames won't be true at all, or not as true as they once were. Because now when you think of Detroit Tigers, who comes to mind? Miguel Cabrera. And there'll be another time when, when, when Miguel Cabrera fades into the uh, you know, distance of, and there's a new guy that becomes synonymous with the team itself. But that is never going to be the case with God. God didn't become absolutely or perfectly good. And he is never going to stop at one point being absolutely and perfectly good. He has always been, is always, and will always be good. Because goodness is who God is. It's essential to his nature. So we see this in Exodus 33, uh, when Moses is talking with God, and Moses asks God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Have you ever noticed the change there? Moses wants to see God's glory, and God says, okay, I'm going to show you my goodness. God's goodness is his glory, and his glory is his goodness. So, so I know this is some, we're getting into theological waters right off the bat here, um, and maybe some of you haven't had your second cup of coffee. So let's just get right down to it. Uh, stick with me here. This is what this means. If you want to know who God really is, if you want to know who God really is, God says, I'm good. That's who I am. And Stephen Charnock puts it this way. He's a Puritan pastor for the six, from the 1600s. He says this very helpfully, I thought. Goodness is not a quality in him, God, but a nature, not a habit added to his essence, but his essence itself. He is not first God and then afterward good. Okay, so he's not first God and then does some little good things here and there. Yeah, but he is good as he is God. So in other words, if, if you were in Moses' shoes and you got to see God's glory and someone from Five Points comes up to you and says, what did you see? Tell me what you saw. You could reply with one word and you wouldn't be wrong. Good. I saw goodness. Overwhelming, overflowing, almost indescribable goodness. And so, again, before you're like, yeah, we know you like theology, and here, here we go again, and you're like, you're just going to let me go for a little bit. Let, let me have the chance to show you why this is so important for your daily life. That God is good in his nature. It's who he is. Because we too easily settle for vague notions of God. We say the word God and are happy to just keep it out there, kind of like this unspoken uh, commitment to each other that we'll just leave that out there uh, and not make each other tell each other what we mean when we say that. We're happy to say God and then just get around the business of everyday life. We, we, we have too many people in the church that too quickly settle for a blurry image of God and are really happy to just keep it that way. We're fine with it being kind of just this vague notion. But did you notice that God didn't scoff at Moses 
when he asked to see his glory and say, come on, man. I'm God. Too, too great for that. You got no chance. No. <laughs> he, he actually reveals himself in a way. He's like, well, if, you, I, if I actually revealed all of it to you, you'd be dead. So let me stick you in a corner of a rock and put my hand over you, and then you can just see the backside of my glory, and, and that'll be enough to make Moses glow for years. Right? And, and so even in that condescending way, though, God reveals himself to Moses so that Moses could know him, so that Moses could walk with him. And this is in the context of Exodus 33, where Moses is like, God, if you send us out and you don't go with us, I don't want to go. I want to be with you. And God says, I'm going to be with you. And, God, and Moses says it again. If you're not going to come with us, I don't want to go. And God says, I'm going to go with you. And Moses says, okay, show me your glory. And God says, you want to know I'm going to come with you? I'm good. Trust me, I'm good. And he says, I'm going to show you my goodness so that you might know me and walk with me. And so for a church like ours, where we can talk a lot about God's glory, but maybe are really anxious deep down that you don't get called on in a class to explain what God's glory means? Isn't it so wonderful to know that God starts describing and defining his glory with goodness? It's goodness. I'm good. That's the kind of being God is through and through. God is good. And getting God's goodness is so important. Uh, getting it into focus is so important uh, because it changes how you view and react to everything in life. If, if you don't settle for the blurry image of God, but begin to focus that image by knowing God is good, it changes everything in your life. It changes how you view things and react to everything that happens in life. God's goodness is not just something we sing about on Sundays. It's something that sustains you on Mondays. Because God isn't only good in his nature. God is also good in all that he does. He's also good in all that he does. So first, God's goodness is, uh, goodness is God's nature. Secondly, God's goodness is God's actions. Goodness is God's actions. So listen to one of my favorite verses in the Psalms. It, it declares this to us. You are good, that's God. You are good and do good. You are good and do good. So it's his nature and his actions. Growing up in the church, I often heard my uh, parents say to one another and to their friends, God is good all the time. And their friends would reply, all the time. God is good. And that helps us clarify the definition of goodness. Goodness is not just the sum of God's glory or the beauty of his perfection or uh, the, summer, the summary or a way to talk about his ineffable qualities that are so indescribable that we almost grasp for words trying to tell how amazingly awesome God is and we could say, okay, God's, God's good. Those are all true. But God's goodness defines all of God's actions. Since God is good, everything he does is good. So God's goodness doesn't just stay in the realm of who God is, separated from us and everything else, uh, but it overflows and defines 
everything God does. So goodness is God's benevolence towards everything, towards us and towards everything in all creation. Okay? So, so God's actions reflect God's being perfectly. God is good, and so God does good. And we see this throughout the scriptures, but mainly in two ways. We first see it in creation. At the end of Genesis, at the end of Genesis 1, at the uh, evening and morning of the sixth day, what do we read? We read this as God looks upon everything he's done in the past six days. He says, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And this is not just God, you know, like patting himself on the back. He, he is telling us something about himself. He's communicating his nature. It couldn't be anything but good because a good God can't create anything but a good creation. God's creative act reflects his absolute perfect goodness. And when Adam and Eve sinned and ruined God's good creation... God moves in benevolence. He moves outward in goodness because he does not first fully judge sin, but because God is good, he promises a son would come who would destroy the serpent. And as that promise unfolds throughout the Old Testament, this first promise then grows into this amazingly good plan for a universal restoration with a new heavens and a new earth where God would once again dwell with us, where we would see and enjoy his perfect goodness forever. And it will never be ruined again. And there are glimpses that this is going to be true. I, it, some of you go on uh, great vacations and you put these pictures up on Instagram and... Um, if you have eyes to see it, I mean, you just start to worship at some of the sunsets or the mountain views or the flowers or the food that you put on at these amazing restaurants. Um, and even this morning, like this world, though, it's still filled with an, uh, really an unspeakable beauty that if you think about it, I, you can't wait to get to the new earth. If, if this earth is like this now, like, if coffee smells like this now, if coffee tastes like this now, can you imagine what a coffee being roasted by God's going to taste like in New Jerusalem? You know, like, or what a... I, I guess this is probably why I should think about some of these things before I get up here, because if it's never going to be night, are we going to see sunsets? These are questions you get in Rooted where you're like, man, I don't know. How did you even think about that? Um, don't ask me how God's three people and also one. Like, he's three, I don't want to, I don't know, okay? It's hard to explain. So, but can you imagine? Like, I hope there's sunsets. Maybe, maybe, maybe there will be somehow, but it'll never go down. It's like Alaska where it never turns night or something like in some parts of New Jerusalem, and you'll see these. But if it's like this now, can you imagine how good eternity is going to be? It's going to be unbelievable that this world right now is so full of the goodness of our glorious God that we could just go on and on on how good God is. Because goodness is who he is, and goodness is what God always does. And the theological term for this is providence. 
providence. It means God isn't detached from what's happening uh, on earth, uh, but he is sovereignly exercising supreme control. He's, he's controlling all things sovereignly that happens on earth because he reigns supreme. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, and it's under God's control. You roll the dice, and God controls the outcome. He is completely transcendent and above all. The Psalms continually refer to God as God Most High. He has no rival and no equal. He is almighty. He's all-present. He's all-knowing. And there isn't a square millimeter in the entire universe where God is not all of those things. But if God wasn't good, you know how terrifying that would be? An all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God that wasn't good? That's terrifying if God was not also always good. And so Psalm 145 says this, the Lord is good to all. You have breath in your lungs right now because God is good. You have a soft seat rather than a hard bench because God created whatever they made it out of. I was going to say cotton, but it's not, I don't know what that foam is. And he gave someone the ability to figure out how to make that and turn it into something so that you could have a nice seat in here. And we have air conditioning. I mean, the, the goodness of God is all around you, and we so often are just oblivious to it or don't recognize it. God is good to us all. all that, his mercy is over all that he has made. You didn't have to have coffee. You could just have water, and you would have liked it. But God has this amazing thing that is called creative ability and goodness. So he gave us taste buds. And the goodness of God is seen in all these glorious things that he's made. And it's his mercy that he gives us glimpses of his goodness. He is good, and he does good all the time. All the time. But, but then we realize we live in a sin-ruined world. And so we wonder, really? I mean, all the time? Is he good all, all the time? And what about those days or weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years, sometimes decades, where God's unfolding providence makes you wonder, good? I mean, how, how can this be good? Have you ever asked that? This, this, this? How is this good? How can suffering and trials be good. And the Bible is clear that the, that the God who is good is not the author of sin or evil, nor does God ever call bad things good, but rather God's providence, that sovereign, complete control over all things, will ultimately make every bad and evil thing serve God's good purposes. As Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, I ask, have you ever said, this isn't good? Maybe somewhat stoically, maybe crying, maybe crying. This is not good. And that may not be wrong. In fact, when you say it, it often isn't wrong. 
but it's not fully true. When you've settled for a blurry image of God, this isn't good is all you say. You say this isn't good and then that's it. But when you don't settle for a blurry image of God, you say this isn't good, but God will make it serve my good. When God's goodness is coming into focus, it changes how you view and react to everything. So you can still say, this isn't good, but God will make it serve my good. And that doesn't minimize that it's bad or that it's evil. God never minimizes bad or sinful or evil things. He never calls them good. He does call us to see beyond those things, beyond what we can see, and to look to the God who will make those evil things serve his purposes for our good and for his glory. And so if you're in a season where all you see is not good and all you're experiencing is not good, and every time you look around, you just want to say, this isn't good, and that's it, do you know how you can keep saying God is good all the time and not have it just be a churchy thing that churchy people say? Do you know how you can say it and really mean it? That God is good all the time? We look to the cross of Calvary. We look to Calvary. Because God was good even when his son hung on a tree, bearing the unrestrained fullness of God's holy wrath against his people's sin. And it was his people's sin. Jesus never sinned. So he didn't deserve to be on the cross. R.C. Sproul famously uh, has said, why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened once. And he volunteered for it. He's talking about Jesus. The only time something bad happened to a good person was when Jesus was murdered on the cross at the hands of evil men. But Jesus volunteered for that. Now, how could Jesus do that? Why would Jesus do that? Because he trusted in God's goodness. He trusted in his Father's goodness. And we know this because when he's praying in the Gospels in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's begging for another way than the cross to save his peoples and those prayers go unanswered, Jesus then says, not my will, but yours be done. That's not just stoically detaching yourself from what's happening. He's saying, okay, your will, I can trust it because you're good. It, do I, it doesn't feel good. It's definitely not going to feel good soon. But not my will, yours be done. It's trusting in his Father's goodness. Jesus trusted the goodness of his Father and walked willingly into the hands of evil men with evil plans, but that those plans would be ultimately turned inside on themselves and accomplish the good plan of God to save a people for his glory. And so, brothers and sisters, if, if God is good, even at Calvary, then we can trust him through whatever providence he sends our way. If, if God makes the greatest evil ever enacted on earth serve our good, then we can trust our good God to turn every evil that comes our way into a servant of our good. And this is the fight of faith. And sometimes it is, isn't it? I mean, you got to fight tooth and nail sometimes to not stop at after this isn't good. But this is the fight of faith, brothers and sisters, 
to stay along with the psalmist. Another one of my favorite verses in Psalm 25. To say this in the midst of trying times. Good and upright is the Lord. You see that? That goes a little bit beyond just the, the church language of God is good all the time. Good and upright. That means God doesn't do anything wrong. He's, he's not losing his control. He hasn't forgotten about you. He's, no one is uh, outmaneuvering God in his providences. Upright means God is not making a mistake even in the middle of what you're undergoing. Good and upright is the Lord. God is good all the time. And there's no time when he's not good. So when you can say that, that then is the fruit of the spirit of goodness in our lives. When the root of God's goodness takes hold of you in this kind of way, then the fruit of the spirit of goodness begins first not in going out and doing good, but by first trusting in God's goodness. So the fruit of the spirit of goodness begins with trust. It begins with trust, and then it moves again to acts. So there, there's the fruit. So we have the root of God's goodness, it's his nature and his actions, and then the fruit of God's goodness is our trusting God, and then our acting in ways that reflect the goodness of God to our neighbors and the nations. So let's look a little bit more at this. Spirit-produced goodness, again, begins not in first doing good, like getting up in here and going like, okay, I'm going to go be good now. No, fruit of the spirit of goodness is actually tied to the root of God's goodness and you trusting in that. If you trust in God's goodness, the more the spirit's fruit of goodness will grow in you and then flow through you. You will be a good person. Now that, I almost didn't say that, you know, because this is five points. And, and we're good reformed people. There is no one good, not even one, right? We like total depravity. And it's, and it's true, we should. But did you, did you notice, though, that sometimes the way we talk about that aspect of the right and good theology can sometimes actually be inconsistent with the rest of the New Testament? Because... If there's no one good, not even one, how is goodness listed in the fruit of the Spirit? So, so what's going on here? Because actually, if the Spirit is producing this, and He is, this is not you mustering up goodness. This is God producing goodness in you and through you. God's people will be good people. Because the Spirit will produce goodness in them. So yes, Romans 3 does say there is no one who does good. There's no one who seeks after God. We have all gone. Everyone is through and through not good. There is not even one good person. But in the argument of Romans, Paul is arguing that no one has an advantage in gaining God's favor or salvation. He's saying Israel, yes, was God's Old Testament chosen people, but they're no better off than the Gentiles. They have no advantage over the Gentiles for earning or meriting or having God's favor or salvation. We're all sinners. 
So salvation is all of grace. And that's a display of God's goodness. He didn't have to save. But because God is good, he moves out in benevolence towards others. God's nature is absolutely good. Sinful human nature is absolutely not good. There's no good we can do to earn God's favor or salvation. But when God saves sinners, the old passes away and we become new creations. We are no longer what we once were. We're now united to Jesus, our good older brother. And in that union, we become more and more like him. We are being conformed to the image of his son. So God is producing goodness in us. God saves, yes, all by grace. We love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift, not by any works, so that you can't boast. Then we forget the rest of chapter 2. What does verse 10 say? So that you can go do good works. But even those good works, you're not going to boast in. Do you know why? Because God prepared them beforehand that you should walk in them. But yeah, salvation, all of grace. But you're saved for good works that God prepared beforehand so that you might boast in him as you go about doing good to your neighbors and the nations. So we live out that newness of life, our union with Jesus, as goodness grows in us and then flows through us. So we can say goodness is not inherent to us. What's inherent to us is our sinful human nature. It's, goodness is not something we can muster up, and anything we do cannot earn God's favor or salvation. But when God saves, his spirit grows a God-reflecting goodness in us. It's a God-reflecting goodness that is produced in us. And what I mean by that is it reflects God's goodness because goodness is to act for the benefit and welfare of others. It's to think of others first. It's to love others as you would want to be loved. It's to act on the behalf of others as you would want them to act on your behalf. Goodness is benevolence towards other people. And the pinnacle of God's goodness is the salvation of sinners through the giving of his son Jesus, right? And so if goodness is going to reflect God, or a goodness in us is going to reflect God's goodness, then the Spirit-produced goodness will be us acting for the benefit and welfare of others, just as God acted on our behalf. Listen to how Titus 3 puts it. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us. So goodness came, and it appeared, and it didn't just stay in a nature. It did something. It saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. His own, his own mercy. So when did God's goodness appear? When you did something that finally merited it? When you finally started getting your act together? No. It was all mercy. It was according to his mercy, not because of 
anything you've done. In fact, our unrighteousness deserved judgment appearing, but what appeared instead? Goodness. Now that kind of goodness then flows through those who have been rocked to their core by God's goodness towards them. When you have seen and known and tasted this goodness, the goodness of God's towards you, well, the Spirit will then produce that in you and it will flow through you. And this is real easy when things are going pretty great. When your coworkers like you, when your neighbors aren't mad at you, when your kids aren't freaking out at you, when bad things aren't happening to you, it's pretty easy. But the rubber meets the road of this fruit of the Spirit when we suffer. When we suffer. When someone does evil to you, the fleshly response is vengeance. Not to turn around and do them good. But the Spirit produces in God's people a God-reflecting goodness. A God-reflecting goodness. Listen to Romans 12. Paul tells it this, says it this way in Romans. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And just a quick note, you have to give thought to it. I don't have to give thought to like getting even, right? Or is it just me? <laughs> it, the moment you are done evil, you're like, I know what to do, Beck. <laughs> like, that's natural. That's, that's the flesh response. That's Galatians 5, 16 through 19. Those arise very easily. But to give thought to do what is honorable takes another fruit of the Spirit, uh, fruit of the Spirit which we talk about self-control. But, but to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written... Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And that takes trust, doesn't it? Do you trust God to do what's right? Do you just say he's good? But can you truly believe it deep down in the moments when you're undergoing evil to say good and upright is the Lord? He's good all the time. I can trust him to do good in this. So to the contrary, as you trust God, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Real easy to say on a Sunday morning in a nice air-conditioned room. Pretty difficult to do when evil is having its way with you. But responding to evil with good and with a good that acts for the benefit and welfare of those who are doing evil to you, only flows from a heart that trusts God, trusts his goodness, and trusts his promise to make everything serve his good purposes. That you can say, instead of responding with vengeance, to say, God's going to turn that around. He's going to use that for my good. Somehow, I might never see it, but I'm going to trust his goodness because he will make all things work for the good of those who love him. 
And so Romans 8.28 is a well-known verse for really good reason. It has led many Christians through the lowest valleys. It's led some of you through the darkest moments of your life that God will make this serve his good purposes. But do you know where the power to trust God in those dark, deep, long valleys come from? It's really easy to say, trust God. Do you know, do you know how to trust God in those deepest, darkest valleys? It actually comes a couple verses later in Romans 8. Paul starts this way uh, in verse 31. He says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And you've heard me say this before. That's a, that's a rhetorical question, number one. And the rhetorical question is actually not nothing. The, the answer is everything. <laughs> who, who, everything's against me. He just said, or he's about to say, we're going to be slaughtered. <laughs> we're going to be like sheep led to this. All these bad things are happening. You're like, Paul, did you not remember you just said, lots of bad things are happening to me. It seems like everything's against me. But he's like, no, who can be against you? What he means is, even though all these things are against you, actually, nothing is against you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, graciously give us all things? He, if, if God is for you, then nothing is ultimately against you, even when everything's against you. So in other words, you want to know what God's goodness means? God's goodness is God for us. That's what it means for God to be good. God's goodness is that God is for us. And that's why my goodness as a kid wasn't really goodness. It was self-directed. It was self-glorifying. It was just the way that I puffed up myself, felt good about myself. It, it was the way that I could you know, boost my righteousness, so to speak, in God's eyes. It was, it was all about me. Goodness is not all about me. Goodness is others directed. I was good for me, but goodness is a change in our nature that then flows through us towards others. Because just as it is in God, who is good and does good, then a spirit-produced goodness will change who we are and begin to flow through us. Goodness, brothers and sisters, is God for us. And if God is for us, then nothing is ultimately against us. And even the worst things will one day be shown to have been a servant of your good. Because God is weaving every dark providence into a beautiful tapestry of his redemption. He, he's going to take every bad thing, every evil thing, and he's going to grind it up into fertilizer that makes the fruit of the spirit of goodness grow in you. 
And this is what the psalmist means in Psalm 34 when he says, taste and see that God is good. Taste and see the goodness of God. He, he doesn't want you just to keep this vague notion out there that God is good all the time. Let's go to work tomorrow. He wants you to feast on it because it's actually freedom to know God is good. It's freedom. In Galatians 5, Paul has been talking about freedom, and I know we've slowed down for the fruit of the Spirit, but the context is it's freedom. For freedom, Christ has set you free. For freedom, Christ has set you free. So tasting and seeing the goodness of God is freedom. It's freedom because every evil thing that ever befalls you loses its power when you see it in the light of God's goodness. It's actually freedom to not repay evil for evil. It's chains to respond to evil with evil. It's freedom to actually respond in love and grace. Uh, vague notions of God chain you to bitterness and hardness of heart. And you just like turn in on yourself and you, it becomes this ugly thing within you. But it's freedom. It's freedom to cling to God's goodness. Because what happens to every betrayal and every slander and every cheap shot and every cancer and every failure and every hurt and every harm and every loss, what happens to every one of those things when you know God is good is that rather than chaining you in darkness, they're turned into servants of your ultimate good. And so you can smile even while undergoing suffering, not because you're a crazy person who's just completely lost it, but because you know no matter what that person means or no matter what Satan's plan for it is, that ultimately, at the end, they will be revealed to actually have been God's servant of your ultimate good. And so you're free then to reflect God's nature and character to our neighbors and the nations because nothing is ultimately against you. Even the worst things that happen are going to work out for your good. But friends, this is only true of those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. Do you know the goodness of God? demonstrated in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. If you hear God calling this day, do not harden your heart, but come in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ, who came, who appeared when the good God sent him while we were still enemies and hating him to save us. And brothers and sisters, may the root of God's goodness to us in Jesus Christ Bear the fruit of goodness in you as you trust every day that God is good all the time. And when you trust that, you're free to do good to all as God has done to you. Let's pray. God, you are good and you do good. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see that 
even in the most not good times. Give us the grace to not respond to evil with evil, but to the contrary. Respond how you moved towards us in goodness and love. So I pray that you would make us good people on this corner. Not so that we would then turn those good things into pride, but that our good works would be seen so that on the last day, people would glorify your name. So help us, we pray, to not only taste and see your goodness, but we pray for the grace of your Holy Spirit to produce this goodness in us for the glory of your name among our neighbors and the nations, we pray. Amen.